Will you turn with me, please, to Psalm 88? Psalm 88. I made it my practice while I was on vacation to uh, spend some time every day meditating my way through some of the psalms that I'd never looked at before, or at least not in any detail, and particularly some of the psalms that have been troublesome to me. And this particular psalm is one that uh, has bothered me from the first day I, I ever read it. This is what I call the black sheep of the, of the Psalter. Because this psalm has not one note of praise in it. Not one. Not one eulogy, not one tribute to God, not one note of thanksgiving. It, it, when you read the book, it sounds, or read the, the, the psalm, it sounds like unrelieved misery from beginning to end. The tune to which this uh, this poem was put is also a blues tune, if I can put it that way. is a sad song. You'll notice in the title the, the song was written for the director of music. That is, the director of music was to incorporate this man's experience into public worship. And according to Mahalat Leonath, which uh, means a, a wail of misery. So the song, I suppose, was sung in a minor key or in some way to indicate this is a very, very sad tune. It's a very sad song. It's a very sad tune. Now, the thing that makes this this uh, uh, psalm unique is, is the fact that of all the psalms, it has no praise. And that's particularly disturbing in view of the fact that the whole collection in, to the Jews was called praises. Our, our name for the psalms is taken from the Greek versions of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. The Hebrew name is Tehalim, which simply means praises. You recognize that hal, Tehalim, in hallelujah, praise Yahweh. So Tehalim is praises. It's a book of praises. And yet here's a psalm that has absolutely no praise, not one word of thanksgiving. Now, the fellow who wrote the psalm is named for us, Heman the Ezraite. Heman, we know from other places in the Bible, was a very wise man, second only to Solomon. As a matter of fact, Solomon was compared to him. Solomon was the wisest man in the world, and uh, Heman less wise, but uh, comparable. Secondly, he's called an Ezraite. Now, that has nothing to do with the name Ezra in the Old Testament. It's not related. An Ezraite was an aborigine, that is, an original inhabitant of the land. Now, in, in our country, the aborigines, the original inhabitants, are the American Indians. In Canaan, the original inhabitants were Canaanites. So Haman was a Canaanite. He wasn't an Israelite at all. He wrote under the aegis, under the authority of the prophets, but he was not an Israelite. He was one of those like Uriah and Rahab the prostitute, and uh, Ruth and others that were brought in from the cold. They came in from the outside. They were gathered up and gathered into God's people by, by God, uh, God himself. And the thing that strikes me is that this man, apparently, we don't know anything about him, his early life, but he must have come to faith in the, in the God of Israel and, and probably thought his life would take a turn for the better and it took a turn for the worse. Everything happened to this dear guy. From childhood on, his life was unrelenting misery. And he put down his experience in, in this song. 
Now let's look at it. Verse 1. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Now you'll notice that the, the word translated Lord here is all in caps. Whenever the translators do that, they want us to understand that this is the formal name for God, Yahweh, the name by which he was known in in Israel. Jehovah, we would say according to the older translations, Yahweh is probably correct. We don't know how the word was translated or how it was pronounced. That's the problem. But that is, if I can put it this way, God's first name. That was his Christian name in the original sense of the word Christian, the the name that we're given, the name that, that people were given when they were baptized. My name is David. That's my first name. His name is Yahweh. As far as as we can tell, the word Yahweh means I am. It's taken from the verb to be. I am that I am, he said to Moses. Now, what did he mean? Well, simply this. He's whatever we need. Do we need patience? That's what he is. Do we need love? That's what he is. Do we need grace for the next uh, few hours or minutes or days? That's what he is to us. Do we need courage? That's what he is. Now, Heman knew God. He knew God on a first-name basis. And he loved God with all of his heart. And yet, it didn't seem that God was meeting his needs. He was praying day and night. Nighttime is the time when the goblins attack. You, you know how that is? You, you know, it suddenly dawns on you, you don't have money to pay the bills. And, your car is about to fall apart and your business is going under and your marriage is not going well and your children are giving you grief and you're not feeling very good about your health and one thing after another begins to... These thoughts begin to assault you at night. you know how it is? You know how it is, don't you? Nighttime is the worst time and, and this man day and night is crying out before God. Verse 2 is a plea. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Why? Well, he explains in verse 3. For my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near to the grave. In other words, this thing is killing me. It's the metaphor that he uses. I don't think he was actually about to die. But to use our idiom today, he's saying, I've had enough. Literally, that's what uh, verse 3 says. My soul is full. I've had enough. Enough already. I can't take any more of this. Paul says that God will not test us or tempt us beyond the point of endurance, but will make a way to escape. The problem comes in realizing that sometimes he will test us beyond the point that we think we can endure. Have you ever come to that point in your life when you you said, I I just, I can't go anymore, I can't take it anymore. I have this idea of what God wants me to be and I'm struggling with it, I'm trying to, to be what God wants me to be and And troubles tumble on my head like bricks out of the back of a truck. And one after another, I'm going under. I can't understand this. We we, we set out on our vacation, and I tried to take all the normal precautions going through the vehicle to be sure that it it would tow us where we wanted to go. And we got as far as Yellowstone. I blew a transmission and... We got as far as uh, Calgary, and, and the springs broke down in the back, and I had to have them retempered and a new spring leaf put in. And We got as far as Kamloops, and the ignition went out, and uh, 
We got a little bit farther, and, and, and then we had problems with the trailer we had to have fixed, and it was just one thing after another. And we get to Oregon, and I discover that my father has passed away, and so we start for home, and I get home. We have a major family crisis we have to face into. I'm watering the backyard, and I flood the basement on the day that I'm due to leave for California. And so you know, I have to mop this mess up while I'm packing and taking care of all the loose ends at home and getting the, you know, there's always a lot of yard work to do. And then finally we get that done and I stumble onto the plane. We go to Dallas. I rent a car. I have a wreck. I destroy the car. And I say, enough. <laughs> God says there's more. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave. Whom you remember no more who were cut off from your care. Now that is not a theological statement. That's not something you write into a creed that God forgets the dead. That's the way this dear man feels. He's just being honest. And by the way, I, I, I just want to say you can be honest with God. You can tell him exactly how you're feeling. He pours out his misery. To God, I feel like you've forgotten me. Everybody else has. No one else cares. And I, I even feel like you don't care anymore. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken me from my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you. Two things I want you to, to note. I wish I had more time to talk about this, but I just, just in, in brief, want to say there are two very important observations to make. The first is that he owned God's sovereignty. He recognizes that he is where he is because God has put him there. There are no secondary causes as far as this man is concerned. No accidents. No random happenings. Everything happens because God determines that it will happen. God is in no way implicated with, the, uh, with the evil, but he takes the responsibility for everything. I pointed out before that statement in Job. When Satan comes back to report to the Lord on the terrible things that have happened to Job, God says to Satan, you moved me against my servant Job. He accepts the responsibility. For all the terrible happenings. Now, I don't understand that thoroughly, but I just I know that God has the right to take us through anything He deems necessary. God is not here for our convenience. Jesus Himself had to learn that. If you're the Son of God, cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, He'll protect you. If you're your God, come down off the cross. If you're God, turn these stones into, into bread. You see, and he had to learn. He was, even though he was a son, as Hebrews put it, he had to learn obedience in the incarnation. He had to discover that God had the right to do as he pleases, that God does not exist for our convenience. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the men who went out into the field? Some went out early in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, others at 9, some at noon, some at... Three o'clock in the afternoon, sun just before quitting time. They worked an hour. When they came back to receive their wages, they all received the same wages. Those that had worked all day were upset. They said, you don't have the right to do this to us. We've borne the heat of the day. 
The owner of the field says, don't I have the right to do as I please with what is mine? Doesn't God have the right to cause in some way that I can't explain some of us to bear the heat of the day? Some of you have very difficult marriages. Some of you are struggling with health problems. Some of you are struggling with your kids. Some of you have had business reverses. Things are tough, and you can't understand why God would do this to us. This man thoroughly understood God has that right. And he's still good. The second thing I want you to notice is that he clearly sees that his miseries are the result of God's wrath. That's very interesting. As you know, I'm a strong exponent of, of the grace of God and his forgiveness. But what we have to recognize is that we are a race under condemnation. Moses picks up that notion in, in Psalm 90 when he says, Death is not our lot, it's a sentence. The wages of sin is death. The human race dies because of God's judgment. And we suffer because we live in a, for, in a fallen world. This world is, is a mess. And God is permitting that to, to occur as an expression of his wrath. We live under that wrath. Because we're in Christ, we're fully forgiven and our destiny is, is secure, it's fixed. We're not going to lose out in the end. But the world is the way it is because our world is under the judgment of God. So he sees that. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have put me in the lowest pit. I, uh, let me tell you about my accident. Uh, I'd, we, I'd had about enough. And we need to get away for a day. So Sunday we, we went over to Tyler, Texas. That's where Carolyn's roots are. And we looked up the old family cemetery and found uh, a whole raft of relatives that that we didn't know anything about, I didn't know anything about. And we just had a wonderful day, and we decided to go back into Greenville and get something to eat. And uh, I had a little run-in with a fellow in the town square. And I thought I was in the right. I, I said, I'm in this lane. And he said, no, you couldn't be in that lane. I was in that lane. I said, no, no, I was in this lane. No, I was in that lane. So there was a witness. So I say to her, which lane was I in? You were in that lane. I say, that's what I thought. I, where were you? I was right here. And I passed you. Yeah, right. So I was in that lane. Yeah, okay. I'm in the right. I was in that lane. So I get the report from the police officer and no witness. I don't know what happened to the witness. He just totally disappeared. So I'm responsible. See? So I'm all upset. They can't do this to me. And then I remembered all the times that I've been in the wrong lane and I didn't have an accident. So do I deserve it? You bet your life I do. See, that's the thing that Solzhenitsyn had to understand. He was put in a, in a Russian gulag and he was angry and resentful because he hadn't done the things that he was charged with doing. But he, remember the famous line, I've quoted it a number of times, that the line of evil does not run between classes and people and nations. It runs right through every human heart. And he makes that very profound statement. No punishment is undeserved. So I deserve it. I deserve it. And you see, what that does is free me from, from resentment. It's only by God's grace that I get anything at all. 
What I reserve, what I deserve, quite frankly, is hell. And it's only by God's mercy and His grace that I've been delivered. Now we must we must go on, verse 10. Do you show your wonders to the dead? These are all questions, unanswered questions that are raised. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you as your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they have surrounded me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. And darkness is my closest friend. And we keep waiting for a note of praise. Because that's normally what you find in the Psalms. But you are to be praised. I will put my trust in you. It's not here. Last word is darkness in in the Hebrew text. Darkness is my friend. All is left. Can't see anything. Now what can we learn from a psalm like this? The the psalm is described as a maskeel. A skel in Hebrew is uh, is an insightful psalm. It's a psalm that's designed to teach us wisdom, wise us up. What, what do we learn from this psalm? Well, the first thing I see is that suffering may well be our lot in life. We shouldn't be surprised. I don't think any of us really can look back on our life and say that we have always suffered. There have been, there have been good times intermingled with the bad times. But quite frankly, some people out here in this congregation have suffered much more than I. And, and some of you have, have suffered in ways that, that the rest of us will probably never suffer. And that may well be our, our lot. And we may never see any, any purpose in it. Sometimes there are flashes of understanding, such as Joseph had when he realized that his suffering was for a purpose. It was the way that God saved a nation. But we don't always see the purpose unless we look at it through, through God's eyes. Now, what is it for? Why, why is it that, that certain people are called upon to, to go through the hard times of life and others seem to be spared? There, there, there seem to be a couple of things that happen to people that have, that have suffered a great deal. One is that they have a very special relationship to God. Now, it's God's intention that all of us grow in grace and in God has ways of working on our character and shaping and molding and making us what he wants us to be. And I, I, I can't tell him how to do his business. He, he just seems to know that some people need to go through a particular process to be shaped and molded. But the end product is always a special relationship to God. An intimacy, a closeness, a devotion, a love that we otherwise could never, never experience. Job learned that. The, the, the punchline of the, of the book of Job, as far as I'm concerned, is Job's statement, I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now I see you. Suffering purified Job's heart in some way in, in which he saw God in a way he could never see him before. And I find that's always true of people that have, have suffered and committed themselves into the hands of a loving loving creator. They haven't become resentful. They've owned God's right to 
deal him that hand, so to speak. And, and they, they've accepted his goodness. They haven't wrestled with God. There is a beauty and a grace about their life that, that some of the rest of us don't have. One of my favorite poets is Annie Flint Johnson. Uh, when she was a young woman in college, she contracted arthritis, and she lived for 40 years in utter misery, unrelieved pain. Her biographer, one of her biographers, wrote a, a book about her entitled Something Beautiful for God. And here's what he says in the introduction. Here is one who wrote from the heart, who in pain and suffering endured triumphantly throughout her life, and who wrote like Milton of things unseen by mortal sight, and showed the world how God can be glorified in the midst of physical trials that few of us are called to bear. She wrote for the common people of the world, men and women like you and me, who face life with its burdens and its difficulties, and who try to trace the rainbow through the rain and to perceive the bow in the clouds. She is that simpler poet of whom Longfellow wrote, whose songs gushed from her heart and, who, and through nights devoid of ease, through nights devoid of ease. Still heard through her soul the music of wonderful melodies. Her songs had power to quite the restless pulse of care. And I read that, I thought of uh, our, our friend Heman, who wrote uh, Psalm 88, because he was the founder of the sons of Korah. He became a troubadour for God. This is the only psalm we have of his, but he affected the lives of hundreds and thousands of people because he... He passed on this desire to sing about God's grace and his goodness to a, a guild of, of singers. Here, here's one of uh, Annie Flint Johnson's poems. It's one that I read often at funerals. God has not promised, sky is always blue. Flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised, sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God has promised, strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, undying sympathy, undying love. What he has promised is his presence. The other thing I would like to say is that people who suffer often become very special people. They not only have a special relationship to God they become a very special kind of person. As Tennyson put it, life is not as idle ore, but iron dug from central gloom. And heated hot with burning fears, and dipped in baths of hissing tears, and battered by the shocks of doom to shape and use. I find that people that have, have suffered have had a lot of the rough edges worn off, the rasp and the file and the hammer and the anvil and the blowtorch, all the tools that God uses are designed to make of us the kind of people that we've always wanted to be. We become more devoted to our Lord and we become more like him in our character. And he knows how to accomplish that. I want to close with a story that uh, I'm, I borrowed from David Needham. I'm in debt to him for the seed of this story, but it really struck me. I was reading one of his books this past week. Tells a story about two farmers. Now, I'm not a, you know, I don't know anything about raising tomatoes, so I may have my facts right. I'm just quoting David Needham. You, you can write him if you disagree. Uh, I'll give you his address. Uh, 
One, one raised tomatoes, the other raised wheat. Both had balloon payments due on their, on their farms. Both had wives who were desperately ill, both of whom needed, uh, they, they, they needed uh, an operation and uh, if, if they were ever to live life fully again. Both of them needed a successful harvest. And uh, they were listening to the news one night, and, and the, the word came that there was a 50-50 chance of rain. The tomato farmer knew if it rained that night, his crop was ruined. The fields would be uh, muddy, and he wouldn't be able to work. The fields wouldn't be able to gather the tomatoes. They would rot in the field. His harvest would be destroyed. The wheat farmer was looking for rain. He needed it. So the wheat farmer and his family, they gathered around the table that evening, and they prayed desperately the rain, for rain. Unbeknownst to them, the, the, the tomato farmer and his family gathered around their table, and they, they prayed that it wouldn't rain. Two farmers, a mile apart, on the same road. Now, it would be nice if God did something miraculous. He would cause a rainstorm to pass right over the wheat farmer's farm and, and bypass the tomato uh, farmer's farm. But what actually happened is the rain, it was a veritable cloud burst. Next morning, the wheat farmer's family got up. They were praising God. God answered our prayers. Tomato farmer and his family got up. Children came in and they said, why? Why would God do a thing like this to us? Then Needham has, a, has us look at the farms. Five years later, the wheat farmer's uh, farm is painted and he has a new picket fence and a new vehicle sitting out front, a new farm machinery. And, and they're sitting around the table talking and they're saying, we're just so thankful. We praise God for what he did that night when he sent rain. He changed our life. He taught us to trust him and to walk with him. Then you go down to the farmer down the road, and, and, and they live in a little tumble-down house, and it's badly in need of repair, and their vehicles are old, and, and they've actually lost the farm. They're now tenants on the farm working for someone else. And, and up the road, the wheat farmer's wife has been cured. She's healthy and happy. And, and here, here stands the tomato farmer pushing his wife in her wheelchair out through the front door, and they say, do you remember what happened five years ago when we prayed that it wouldn't rain and God saw fit to send rain? How we have learned to love him. How we have learned to trust him. How we have learned to believe that he's good. Psalm 55, one of the verses in Psalm 55 says, Cast your... Uh, King James and the NASB and the NIV, all of them translated, cast your burden upon the Lord and he'll sustain you. But the word behind that word burden, if you look at it, is literally the word appointed lot. Cast your appointed lot upon the Lord and he'll sustain you. You notice that this man never loses his faith, and this is what comes through loud and clear in this psalm. Though his whole world is falling apart, though he can look back to his childhood and see nothing but bad health and bad luck and difficult circumstances, he still gets up every morning and says, Lord, I trust you. I love you. He just keeps clinging. So whatever your lot is, cast it upon the Lord, and he'll sustain you. Let's stand together. Let's take a moment to confess any bitterness that we might have in our hearts toward the lot that God has assigned to us. Some of us, I know, think from time to time that we've 
we've got a bad lot. And God has not been good to us, but the Word tells us that He is He's good. And whatever He does is ultimately good. And whatever happens to us, He's He's going to use that to draw us into a very special relationship to Him and make very special people out of us. Lord, we uh, we want to give thanks this morning for your for the miracles that you've worked in our life. The greatest miracle of all being the change of character that that you've wrought in us and that you're continuing to work out. We want to submit to you knowing that you're a wise and wonderful Lord. We trust you with our lives. And one of these days, we're going to stand before you and with the Apostle Paul, we'll say this light momentary affliction has indeed worked for us an eternal weight of glory. We do that because we look not at the seen, but at the unseen. Help us to keep our eyes riveted on you, focused upon your face. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.